Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you today, God, that we can come to you because Christ came to us. He came and accomplished what we could never do. He overcame temptation in the wilderness. He became our champion. He became the greater Adam. We thank you for that. We thank you that you have provided for us a sinless substitute. And that is what we want to celebrate this morning. We want to celebrate our champion. We thank you, Jesus, that that coming to us was willful on your part. We thank you that you willfully subjected yourself to this battle on this planet for your people. We thank you that you have granted us what we need, what we could never earn through your righteousness and through your obedience and through your holiness. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have shown us these truths. The very fact that we see this is a divine act of grace toward us. You have shown us and illuminated the text to us to show us the greatness of Christ. And we love you and thank you for that. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for each and every soul that's here today. And I pray that you would equip them and strengthen their confidence in Christ today as a result of this sermon in Mark. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can open God's Word with me to Luke this morning, and we're going to look at Matthew this morning, and we're going to look at Mark this morning. We're going to begin in Luke 4 this morning, and then we're going to go quickly from Luke 4 to Matthew 4. Actually, Matthew 3, we'll begin there and go to 4. Today we're going to be studying about Christ, our champion. This will be the focus of our lesson this morning as we look into Mark's gospel in particular, and um, specifically in verses 12 and 13 in Mark. But here, let's begin by just reading about our champion in Luke's gospel, in Luke 4 and verse 1 and 2. The scripture says this, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, turn to Matthew, Matthew three, sixteen down to 4-2. This is a synoptic view of what our champion did for us and who led him into this battle. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, turn with me to our main text in Mark's gospel this morning. Mark 1, we'll begin in 9 and read down to 13. Mark 1, 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen this? Wouldn't you have liked to have been at the Jordan? Wouldn't you have liked to have been at a distance in the desert to observe this? Where you have been. God has brought you there Himself in His text. In all these accounts, what's interesting to me is, every one of them that I've read, we go with our champion, King Jesus. We go with our champion from the praises of God the Father and then immediately into battle with Satan and temptation. Do you notice that? It's an immediate driving into temptation 
after he has been blessed by his father. Because his father blessed him to go into his ministry that would be on our behalf, for our good. He would come and conquer what we could not conquer. He would conquer it personally himself. In Mark 1, 12 through 13, what we see here are some highlights. See, Mark is highlighting three phases of our champion's battle. Mark tells us that our champion, Jesus, was number one, propelled into this battle by the Spirit in verse 12. And number two, Mark tells us that our champion was tempted in this battle by Satan in verse 13a. And then Mark tells us lastly that Jesus, our champion, was comforted after this battle by his servants in verse 13b. What we see here is we see Jesus being blessed by the Father and anointed to be our Messiah and our champion over sin and temptation. And he responds to his Father's blessing with immediate action. That's Mark's point this morning. He didn't hesitate to go into his suffering ministry on our behalf. And I'm glad about that. I'm glad he did not hesitate. I am glad he saw his ministry laying before him. And for the joy that he would see in the future, he would embrace suffering that would take him to the cross. The joy would be that he would have a portion given to him, and we are that portion. And we thank him for going through this joyfully on our behalf. But it was a battle. This was a real battle. This is a real Satan and a real Messiah. Satan, Diabolos, the devil, the accuser, the deceiver, the fallen angel Lucifer was employed here by God to display the sinlessness of Christ. In actuality, what's going on here is Jesus is being sent out to conquer Satan. Satan is not coming just to tempt Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who orchestrates this. That's what I always find amazing when I read this text. It was God, the Holy Spirit, who drove Jesus out to prove He was the incarnate Son of God, sinless and not able to sin nor fall like Adam. Jesus is the greater Adam, the second Adam. But it is a battle for Him because Jesus is fully God yet fully man. And He fights this battle in a way that brings hope to all of us. He fights this battle in a way that shows us that we can fight like Christ. He fights not with his deity. He fights through the means that God's given him in his humanity, which is amazing because that's hopeful for us. The way Christ overcomes temptation in the desert is also a pattern for us. It's not just a testimony to his sinlessness, which is really, I think, what the ultimate purpose is here, but it's also something that gives us hope because he can sympathize with us because he set a pattern for us. We can follow Him. We can do what Jesus does here when we are tempted by sin. But again, it is a battle. In the first phase of our champion's battle, we can see, number one, that Jesus was propelled by the Spirit. And He's propelled by the Spirit actually to confirm what God has affirmed in verse 11. In verse 11, God the Father says of God the Son, You are my beloved Son, with you... I am well pleased. He's pleased with Jesus because Jesus is obedient, because that is his inward nature. He is without sin. He is incapable of sinning, and his Father is pleased with him because he is going into this battle that will be severe. It'll be real temptation pressed upon his flesh. And Jesus embraces that ministry and goes into it with eagerness and urgency on our behalf and for God's glory. In verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him, or if you have the NASB, it's impelled him, drove him out into the wilderness. The ESV translates it, drove him. But again, it means impelled or to set out or to send out. This is a powerful word in the Greek. It actually means throw out or cast out. Matter of fact, Jesus uses it that way. In verse 39 and 34 of this chapter, in verse 34, Jesus uses the same word speaking about what he would do to the demons. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out or drove out many demons. Verse 39, 
And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. That's the same word that's used in verse 12. And what we find is the Holy Spirit who is driving him out, impelling him or propelling him into his ministry on our behalf. It's the same Holy Spirit that we see blessing him at his baptism in verse 10. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then that same Spirit propelled him with a divine impulse into the wilderness to defeat Satan. And that happened again immediately after God the Father had blessed him. In Jesus' baptism there in 9 through 11, we hear and we see a triune inauguration ceremony. We see and hear that Jesus was the set-apart and anointed Messiah, set-apart to be our holy substitute. But when Jesus went through this inauguration, that wasn't all that he was called to do. He was also called to go through a time of probation, just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was called to undergo a time of testing, a period of testing, and recover what Adam had lost in the fall in Eden. Verse 12, here in Mark, says that the Holy Spirit sent him out or impelled him, impelled Christ into this battle. But notice, it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit tempted him. It is Satan who would tempt him. The Holy Spirit impelled him to go to defeat the tempter. It cannot be that God the Holy Spirit was tempting God the Son to disobey God the Father. That would be Trinitarian anarchy. That would be non-scriptural. But in verse 12, what we see is that Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to prove that He was truly holy and the anointed one of God. And Jesus does this, I believe, after studying Scripture and looking in the Old Testament and looking in the New Testament, I believe Jesus does this because the first Adam had to go through this himself. The first Adam went through a probationary period in the Garden of Eden, and he failed. Look what Genesis says, Genesis 2. This was the probationary period that God had gave to Adam. This was the requirements for him to live in peace and in fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, Adam, we know, failed to do this. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. That man would be Adam. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded... Now, here's the probationary period. He's commanding the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he made Eve. But we know that Adam was placed here to obey God's command, and yet he failed to obey the Father's will. He failed to obey God's command, and he was in the place that he, he should have been able to do it most easily. He failed God in the best possible conditions. He was without sin. He had never sinned. He was in paradise. He had everything he wanted but one thing, the one thing God commanded he could not have. And Because he disobeyed the Father's will, he brought us down with him. He failed and brought the curse of God upon the entire human race. So we see Jesus coming now as the second Adam to recover what was lost in the garden. The second Adam, Jesus, he also went through a probationary period, but it wasn't in the Garden of Eden, it was in the wilderness of Judea. This is a deep contrast that Mark is painting for us. In the best possible place, Adam failed. In the worst possible place, Christ was victorious. Unlike Adam, Jesus obeyed God's will in this worst case scenario. Christ's obedience as a result of this brought freedom from the curse of God to all who trust in Him. This is amazing. This is a turning over of the fall. He is recovering us. Even in this illustration through His temptation. He is redeeming us. He's redeeming what Adam had lost, and he does so personally. This is the very act of God impelling Jesus, God the Son, to go in and defeat our greatest enemy. 
And he does it immediately. And so what he says is, here in 12, that the Holy Spirit is propelling him, again, powerfully with a divine impulse to go and battle for us with an immediate urgency. The need is great. It cannot be postponed. You must pursue this. This is why you have been incarnated. This is why you came to earth. And so the Holy Spirit propels him into his ministry. And that's a ministry that Jesus knows will be one of suffering for our salvation. What I think is amazing, saints, is this. He knows it's going to be a battle. And he does not shrink back from what awaited him in this ministry. He doesn't hesitate to go forward into this battle that will be serious, that will be a real battle against his flesh. And he goes into this because he is going to be our suffering Savior to redeem us from the curse. What I love about it when I read this, it just seems like Mark's painting the picture of a fighter and that Jesus is going to meet Satan head on as a champion, as our champion. He's going to meet him head on. He's going to prove to Satan and to us that he is the sinless human substitute. He's going out. He's being sent out by the Holy Spirit to conquer Satan as the greater Adam. Where where Satan conquered Adam in the garden, Jesus is going to conquer Satan in the wilderness. And that moves us to the next phase of our champion's battle, number two. It's the next phase, the second phase of our champion's battle Jesus is tempted or was tempted by Satan, the accuser, the deceiver. And he's tempted by him so that he would conquer temptation as the second Adam. Again, he, in this temptation, what he's doing is he's recovering us from the fall. He's re, it's a recovery of Adam's fall in the garden. I think the, the, the parallels are clear here. It says in verse 13a, and he was in the wilderness, not in a garden. And he was in the wilderness, it says, 40 days. And if we read the other accounts, we know that it's 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. 40 days of weakness. We have Adam fat and happy and delighting in all the riches of God's garden. And then we have Jesus in this wilderness, in this desolate place, starving. In his humanity, he was weak. His flesh was weak. Adam's was strong. Adam failed in his strength. Jesus overcomes in his weakness. He is the superior Adam. He is our head now. Where Adam was our federal head and we fell with Adam and we received the curse of Adam, now in Christ we have received the blessing of God the Father because He overcame sin for us. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted or tried or tested by Diabolos, Satan. And He was with the wild animals. Mark's the only account that actually describes it this way. He describes the condition of Jesus' temptation. And again, it was a hostile condition. It was a weak condition that he was in, in a hostile environment. And again, what he's doing, he's proving, Jesus himself is proving to be the greater Adam, even in his weakness and in the wilderness. That's what Romans 5 says that he did. Look at Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 describes Jesus as the greater Adam who came to overcome sin on our behalf and prove to Satan, and to us, that he is the Lamb of God that was sent from the Father, the one who was without sin, without stain. He was the perfect sacrifice. Therefore, he could not have sinned. Again, he was incapable of sin because his nature was not tainted like ours. He had real flesh that could be tempted, but he didn't have the inward desire that we have. Look what it says in 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, even without that, it says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. The sin had tainted everyone, so therefore everyone was dying because of sin. Even if they didn't have the law, they were still dying as a result of breaking God's law from the heart. Even those who were Those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, notice, a type of the one who was to come. That would be Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
It doesn't say all, but it means many. It means all that would believe, okay? And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see the superiority to Christ, the second Adam. Through his gift, he justifies. Through Adam's failure, he condemns. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is superior to Adam. His acts of righteousness are superior to Adam's. Mark 1.13 and even the other gospel accounts show us this. Again, only Mark describes his condition and the place in which he is at here as being a wilderness. It's a wilderness. It was a dangerous place that Jesus goes into on our behalf. He goes into a dangerous, desolate place that's inhabited by wild animals. And I think in this, he's just showing as he's going into this, without any protection, he's showing that he trusts his Father's will and promises that he was the Messiah, the anointed one who would accomplish God's work. So he goes into a place that looks impossible to survive in. He goes there confident and faces all the temptations that are there, face all the human temptations, even those that aren't listed, those of fear, those of intimidation. And he goes into this wilderness to face the worst animal of all, Diabolos, Satan. He goes in there to face him and to conquer him. He goes into that, though, in a weak condition, still more superior than Adam. In this fearful place, Jesus trusted in God alone. He didn't listen to Satan's voice. He had the voice of God inwardly, hidden in his heart. You see, when Jesus is pulling out Scripture to confront Satan, he's not pulling out that from a divine standpoint. That is something he has memorized, something he has been taught from childhood, just like you and I. It is divine in the sense that it's God's Word, but it is also placed into Jesus' human mind because he labored at it. He studied it. He read it. And he loved it. And he had no desire for anything else but that. That will protect you from sin, folks. God's word will console you. God's word will guide you. It will direct you. And that's what it did for Christ. It directed him in the midst of the worst possible conditions to exalt the glory of God. We don't have to be overwhelmed when we're tempted by sin. Sin should drive us back to God's Word, find comfort in God's Word, find direction from that, because it'll lead you out of the darkness eventually into a place of peace. Again, that's what Christ even shows to us in His whole life. He went through a great darkness here in the wilderness. He's not in a place like the Garden of Eden where paradise was lost. He's in a place, again, that requires faith in God. He's in a place that's obviously Cursed by sin. It's desolate. It's harsh. There are vicious animals who now will eat you instead of stand beside you, like in the case with Adam. And here again, in his weakness, he overcomes. This is a great contrast, again, between the first Adam and the second Adam, I think, here. The first Adam, just note this, the first Adam failed in paradise. The second Adam triumphed in the wilderness. The first Adam failed while feasting, and the second Adam conquered while fasting. That's what's going on here. He is showing that he is the superior substitute. He comes to give us a positive righteousness, not just take away sin. He comes by showing us that he is inwardly submitted to the will of the Father. What we see happening here in Mark 13... I think is amazing, actually. I think what we see happening here is basically God's glorious eternal plan of redemption beginning. 
It begins with Jesus being driven out to defeat our enemy. Here in Mark, what we see is the old serpent confronted by the holy seed and defeated. We see God's promised one coming to overcome and fulfill the promises that God made to man in Genesis 3.15. Look at Genesis 3.15. I think this is what we see. We see this promise that was made here coming to fruition in Christ. In 3.15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's speaking of Jesus, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This offspring, this holy one, this promised one will come and crush Satan. That's what I think we see beginning here. He is destroying his power. He is destroying his power over us because Jesus is overcoming temptation in our place. Now again, Jesus being fully God, as we believe he is according to Scripture, and fully man, we know that because of that he had no sin nature, yet these temptations were real for him. Even though he couldn't fail, and he would not fail in these tests, these temptations and tests were real, and they were on our behalf. So we could actually see that what God said in his baptism was true in his life and actions. He is the one with whom God is pleased. He is the one who obeys continually, who walks obediently, lives for God's glory. And he does all of that, folks, because that's what's required of us. None of us do that. None of us keep the law of God. None of us even desire that all the time. Though we do desire it as Christians, there are many other desires that crowd that out during the day. Jesus never had those desires crowded out. He always longed for the Father's will. But at the same time, that desire was placed in a body, humanly. And the gospel accounts are really clear that Jesus' tests were real and they were powerful. This is where it gets a little technical, and I want you to understand how this God-man can be tempted in a real way, and he does so to display his holiness and also his sympathy for us. His temptations were powerful. I think actually in reality, I think his temptations were more powerful than our temptations. Look at how he was tempted with me in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Now, to set this up, what I need you to understand is this. When you read these, pay close attention. Listen closely. Because these tests, in particular were suited for the sinless one. In reality, he is not just doing this as our sympathetic, suffering Savior here. He is doing this as the sinless one of God. He's doing things here, or he's being tempted by things here, that would not tempt any of us. So we can't say it's purely a human temptation. Though it is affecting him humanly, it is actually a divine temptation. Yet he responds, even in his weakness, obediently. Look what it says here in 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, the angels, behold, angels came and were ministering to him. 
Now, again, these temptations for Jesus were real, but they were specifically for Jesus. And he passed the test that only Jesus could pass. If you look at verse 3, you can see that this temptation came to Jesus because Christ actually deserved to be fed continually as the creator and provider of everyone. He deserved to be fed. He deserved to eat anything he wanted and to have food. He, he should have never hungered. But because of his ministry that was given to him, he humbled himself to feel our hunger. He humbled himself to suffer for us. And so this temptation was real because, one, he deserved to be fed. And he could have demanded to be fed. And secondly, he's the only one who could turn rocks into bread because he is divine. Yet he submitted to the Father's will inwardly. Yet the pressure for him to do it outwardly was there because, again, he deserved these things. This was his right as creator to eat what he wills, never grow hungry. Yet he, again, suffered and humbled himself to feel our hunger and sympathize with us. Verses 6 and 7, you can see there that his temptation came to him Again, because he deserved something. He deserved what actually Satan was saying should happen to him if he fell, if he stumbled. He should have always been picked up and carried by angels because he was the king of kings. He was the sovereign one. He should have never felt pain in his feet. He should have never felt pain in his body. Yet, to fulfill the Father's will, Jesus humbled himself, not to be carried, but to carry a cross to Calvary. He deserved to be exalted, but he chose to be crucified. He chose it. That's why the temptation was real. He could have demanded it, but yet he chose to be a servant instead. Verses 8 and 9, we can see that the temptation came as to Jesus in particular here because he deserved to rule this world as Lord, as the Master. Again, though, he, instead of ruling immediately, he was submitted to the Father's Wheel and direction that one day he would rule completely. He would rule a people that he would die for. And he would redeem a planet that Adam lost. And he would be Lord of all according to God's direction and God's plan and God's timing. But here, instead of being Lord and supplanting God's will, he humbles himself and he suffers as a substitute for sinners. He could have chosen comfort, but instead, again, he chose the cross. That's what makes Jesus, again, a superior Adam, a superior substitute for us. He should have been praised. He should have been fed. He should have been carried. He should have ruled now. But instead of asserting all those rights as deity, he submitted to the Father's will for our salvation and for God's glory. But I want you to understand, even in this, the the Anthropos, the God-man, the 100% God, 100% man felt the pressure of these temptations. He felt it. I know he felt it. I know it wearied his body and it wearied his mind because, again, later in this text in Mark, we know that he had to be ministered to by angels. Holy administrations, holy fellowship was given to him, I think, as a prize, as we'll look at later, but I also think that he needed this. It exhausted him. This temptation was great. And it was full-blown. We need to understand that. Even though he didn't have an inward desire for sin, he had outward pressure to sin. Unlike us, we have the inward desire and we cave. Jesus could never cave. Jesus had no ability to cave into sin, yet he felt the full weight of it pressing down on him physically. He felt what you feel outwardly, yet inwardly he could never submit to it. So therefore, it was a greater temptation, a greater pressure that he felt on our behalf than what we go through. Jesus had no inner propensity to give in to sin. Jesus had no release from outward pressure to sin. Just think about that. What do you do when pressure comes to sin, when you're tempted? What do you do? Inwardly, you cave, and then you give in, and you submit to this outward temptation, and you sin. And then there's release because you've caved in. But not Jesus. He could never do that. Jesus couldn't do that because he had no inner weakness. He had no deceptive heart. He had no rebellion in him. 
He couldn't do this. He could not sin because his heart was completely devoted to God on our behalf. This outward pressure, though, was real. It was intense, and it was meant for us. He needed to go through this to overcome what we have failed to do constantly. It's actually something that was required of him as our substitute, though he didn't deserve to have to go through this. We deserve this because of indwelling sin in us. We deserve to feel temptation. We deserve to fall into temptation because our sin is actually drawing us to temptation, to sin, to disobedience. But Jesus submitted to go through that so that he would protect us from it by overcoming it in our place. For Jesus, I I try to picture this, what it would have been like for him to go through this temptation. And I, I was trying to think of it in terms of a battle. And it's as if Jesus is standing, receiving the full blast of Satan against his flesh. He's receiving these blows to his flesh, these attacks on his flesh. And he is not protected any more than you and I. He is nothing but human flesh. And he's receiving this pounding outwardly, but inwardly there is a pounding for God's glory that is overcoming all of these temptations for us. Inwardly, he is wholly unlike us. He doesn't yield to sin like us. He deserved all the things that were promised to him by Satan, yet he did not receive them because it wasn't the Father's will for him at that point. He humbled himself instead, again, for our good and for God's glory. When we're tempted, we need to remember that. Christ overcame it for us. Therefore, we should see in Him hope and release from temptation. We shouldn't walk into it willfully. We should fight against it by hiding behind Christ's work, Christ's Word, His direction. I think what's, to me, one of the most amazing parts of this text, go back with me to, to Mark 1, Mark 1, 12 and 13. I think the greatest miracle in Christ's temptation is this. Not that he overcame. I actually think that he overcame because that was God's full intention. I believe that he couldn't have sinned. He couldn't have failed. He is God's anointed one. That's a miracle. But I think the greater miracle to us in particular is this. He had victory as a champion by using the same weapons that are available to you and I by God's grace. He chose to use weapons that we have access to. His weapon was the Word of God. And he fought and defeated sin simply by trusting in God's Word. And we can too. You can overcome temptation if you are hiding God's Word in your heart because you will see it for what it is. You will see what it did to Christ. You will see that it is not pleasing to God. Therefore, you will shun it and run from it because that's what God's Word has revealed. But folks, that's not going to happen unless we hide it, unless we know it, unless we bury it in our souls and we live on it. It is our daily bread. It's a weapon that will help us champion over temptation. It will help us win in the battle against sin. Look what Psalm 119 says. And and either you believe this or God's a liar. Either you believe that the Bible will actually keep you from sin or sin will keep you from it or you don't believe God's promises. And and listen, this is not just a matter of, okay, I'm going to memorize a verse in my head. Psalm 119, 9. It's not a matter of just memorizing a verse. Listen, church, it's memorizing God's Word contextually meaningfully and doing it for God's glory. You're memorizing not just for selfish motives, but for God-exalting motives. God, keep me from sinning against you and you alone. Do that by showing me your will, showing me your way, guiding me, directing my path so that I do not sin against you. It's not just so I don't get in trouble because of my sin. My sins are dealt with. My sins are forgiven. My sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about offending my righteous Savior who died for my sins. So Jesus, guide me, guard me according to your promises. But to do that, you have to know it. You have to bury this up. You have to be buried into it. Dig deep. Meditate. Ponder this. Pray this. 
Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Here's God going to give you an answer by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored this word up in my heart so that I would know God's revealed will to walk in holiness, to walk in obedience, to follow the things that he wants me to follow, to shun sin. I've hidden that down deep in me. That will guard me against temptation. When lust, when anger, when whatever it may be comes at you, you can remember what God has said about it, how he has directed us away from it, and how he has shown that Christ has overcome it. That will keep you from it. Jesus shows us that that is the way he fought. And he wielded his weapon carefully because he knew it internally and he loved God's word. That is how he fellowshiped with his father, was through his word. And he walked in unity with his father through his word. And he cut straightly with God's word. And he repelled the devil with God's word. And we can do that as well. In Mark 1.13 we see that Jesus overcame our enemy. I think what 13 actually is going to show us is that Christ was not just a sympathetic Savior, a sinless sympathetic Savior, but He was also a champion, a champion who fought worthily, a champion who fought mightily, and a champion who was weary. And yet His fight was blessed by His Father. In the third phase of our champion's battle, we observed that, number three, Jesus was comforted by His servants. We see that God's champion needed care. This, again, is speaking back to His hypostatic union, His 100% God, 100% man nature. He needed care from His Father in this spiritual battle, and so do we, church. It is a spiritual battle that will weary you, but it is worth the fight to glorify God. It is worth fighting sin and temptation with every fiber in your body. It is worth giving it all because the promise of God is that if you give it all, God will care for you. God will care for your needs. If you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, everything else will be added. Everything else will be taken care of. Do not worry. Do not hesitate. Jesus didn't hesitate. He didn't flinch. He ran into the battle. He sacrificed it all. He gave it all. And when he was weary and exhausted, he knew that his father would care for him and console him and comfort him. And we have that promise too as Christians. The fight with sin is hard. It's wearisome. It's never ending because of this indwelling sin in us. Jesus had a short period of life. We have this extended life of sin from birth. And it's wearisome to fight this battle. But we know that His Spirit is with us and His Word will guide us and He will comfort us. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. And He comforts us through His Word, through His church. We need to understand there are means of grace available to us as Christians when we go through struggles and trials. God intends to comfort us and console us with His means of grace. Prayer, fellowship, the Word, communion. He will comfort and minister to our needs through that. Here, it says that Jesus was comforted by His angelic servants, which I think speaks volumes about the Father's pleasure in Jesus' service here. He sends holy angels down to nurture His Son, receive His Son in victory, and nourish Him, take care of Him physically, spiritually. Mark 1, 13b says, And the angels were ministering to him. And the angels were ministering to him. Again, what we see, I think, is God's pleasure, God the Father's pleasure in God the Son's victory. And I think it's evidenced here by sending these spiritual servants to comfort his faithful champion, our victor, the one who would redeem us from the fall. He is rewarded here. By God the Father, I believe, through this supernatural nourishment. We don't really know how the angels cared for Jesus. The Scripture doesn't tell us that. We can speculate, okay? He's hungry, so we can speculate that maybe the angels brought him food from heaven, right? Bread from heaven, manna. Maybe they did. Maybe they brought him manna to nourish him physically. 
Or maybe they came simply to comfort him with fellowship, heavenly fellowship, because it had been a lonely battle. Or maybe he did it, they did both. Maybe they actually fed him and fellowshiped with him as a reward of his faithfulness to God's will. We don't know exactly. But what we do know is that the angels did comfort him. They did minister to his needs, whatever they were. And they did so because, again, I think God was blessing him in his victory. It appears that these angels coming to him, I think, in my own preference here of studying this, I think the angels were coming to him as a champion. They were coming as his reward in this battle and coming to give him heavenly fellowship, heavenly encouragement. I think that's very gracious of our God. He cared about God the Son's victory. He cared about his weariness, and he sent his spiritual beings, his angelic servants, to come down and minister him when he was in his lonely and weak state. Mark 1, 12-13 shows us that I believe through Jesus' victory in the wilderness, we have secured fellowship with God forever in heaven. It's through his work and his labors and his weariness that we have secured heavenly fellowship. We know that God will commune with us, care for us, watch over us, just as he did his son, because his son was faithful in our place. Now look at your outline. Mark 1, 12 through 13 tells us that number one, Christ, our champion, was propelled into battle to show us that Our victory over temptation comes through His purity, through His sinless condition, through His sacrificial work. His purity covers us eternally. That's how our fellowship is brought to us from God the Father. It comes to us and we can approach Him because we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Because He came into this world to overcome sin for us. And secondly, Christ our champion was tempted in the battle to show us that Our power, not just our victory, but our power to overcome temptation is found in God's Word. He shows us that by His own illustration. God's Word is what guides us away from sin and guides us into intimate fellowship with God the Father. Now thirdly, Christ our champion was comforted in the battle to show us that our comfort in the midst of temptation comes from Christ's sympathy. Christ's sympathy comforts us when we are tempted. He comforts us because Jesus himself knows what it feels like. He knows humanly what it feels like to have the pressure of temptation outwardly bearing down on us. He has mercy toward us. He has grace toward us to give as a result. That's why we can come to him, to the throne of grace, because we come Because He understands our condition. He has interceded for us. He has incarnated Himself to sympathize with us so that we can have fellowship even when we fail, church. He overcame it. We overcome with Him, but we still struggle in it, don't we? We don't have to be discouraged in that. He knows what we feel like, and He has mercy on us, and He wants to bring us out. That's why He drives us back to the power of His Word. That's why He drives us back to His victory that established our salvation. We have a champion who can comfort us when we are tempted because our champion is pure, powerful, and sympathetic. Look with me at Hebrews, lastly, to see that the writer of Hebrews agrees with Mark in this text. Hebrews 4. This is, again, a great comfort for us as Christians. Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We have a high priest. That's one who's actually interceding for us, mediating for us, going to before holy God before us, carrying us to him. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's the distinction. Greater than Adam, greater than us. He knows what we feel like, yet he didn't cave into those sins unlike us. 
Let us, he says then, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to God in our time of need because we know that he cares about us. We know that he sympathizes with us because of the work of his son. We know that Jesus sympathizes and cares about our weaknesses and overcame them for us. That's what gives me confidence. That's what gives you confidence to come before God now. You don't come on your own. You don't come dressed in your filth. You come dressed in the righteousness of Christ. His overcoming strength dominates you and I, covers us, and it should lead us to Him over and over again when we sin. I really want you to understand that today. I really want you to understand that He is not only the perfect one, He is the perfect sympathetic one who has come to give us hope. And also teach us, we can overcome. We can go through these battles. We don't have to live a life of constant, oh, I fell again, I fell again, I fell again. We can actually look at our failures and say, how can they point me back to the Messiah's work? We're called to do that. We're called to give God praise for Jesus' victory. And I want us to do that. I want us to learn how to do that. I want us to avoid sin, walk in holiness. But when you face temptations, I want you to find your strength in Christ's work, in God's word and God's means of grace. There you will find comfort. There you'll find fellowship with God. You'll be brought back to that place where God will minister to your needs. So pray that God will do that with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided for us a sinless substitute, a powerful Savior, one who sympathizes but also overcomes perfectly. We thank you that you have brought through Jesus all that we need for life and godliness. We pray that we would acquire what we need to fight sin by studying your word, by dwelling upon your promises, by following your commands, by your spirit's direction and power. Lord, we pray that today you would be exalted through sovereign grace in our fellowship, in our communion with the saints together in love. We pray that as we struggle through temptations as a church, we would be driven back to the completed work of Christ as our hope. That we would not wallow in our temptations and sins and failures, but we would find that He is our conquering King who brings us out of those victorious. We thank You for the promises that You've shown us. We thank You for the promises yet to be fulfilled in Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would come quickly and that You would prepare us and equip us between now and then to do the work of the ministry You've called us into just as you went immediately into it, God, I pray that you would make us, drive us by your Spirit, go into the immediate needs around us with this message, that Christ is our champion, and our hope is in him. And we can share that with those who are hopeless, so that they would see and know the glory and the love of Christ. And I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.